This is a season of good tidings of great joy. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 to 7 we read, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased her joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What are you searching for? Is it fun and friends and family and fortune? popularity, prestige, and power? What are you searching for? Have you noticed those impressive large Christmas trees set up in so many shopping malls like Cavendish Square? Surely you've noticed those beautifully wrapped presents piled up under most of those trees. You'll see many children's eyes wide as they look upon those bright, shiny, shimmering presents, often with attractive ribbons around them. Over the years, when my children were very young, they each asked me, what is in those boxes? those beautifully wrapped, attractively presented boxes under the Christmas trees are all empty. Absolutely nothing is in those boxes. The world offers so much, but in the end it turns out to be so empty. The world, the flesh and the devil promise you everything you could possibly design, things you never even imagined. But like those alluring, attractive-looking presents under the Christmas trees in the shopping malls, the promises of the world turn out to be disappointingly empty. Those who pursue materialism will find the merry-go-round that gets them nowhere, mazes that get them lost, and dead-end streets that frustrate their desires. Hedonism, living for pleasure, and existentialism, selfishness, where the only thing that matters is me, myself, and I, will prove to be short-sighted, meaningless, empty, purposeless. So we should ask at Christmas ourselves and others around us, what are you searching for? Wise men still seek Christ. What is your purpose in life? What is in the boxes that you've been obtaining from the world? Do not waste your life on the empty boxes of this world. The time-wasting treadmill of trends, fashions and fads are ultimately frustrating. Do not settle for less than God's very best. God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. What is your life's purpose? What are you seeking for in life? What is the chief end of man? Will the catechisms answer question number one? Our chief end of man, our main purpose in life is to worship God and to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. Christmas should remind us of the danger of missing out on what is most important. 
We read in the Bible, there was no room for them in the inn. The Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, came and there was no room for them in the inns of Bethlehem. They missed the greatest opportunity of a lifetime. How must all those innkeepers of Bethlehem feel? They turned away the greatest man ever to be born. There was no room for Emmanuel, God with us. The innkeepers could not accommodate the Creator, the eternal judge before whom they must stand on the Day of Judgment. They missed the opportunity of not just their lifetime, they missed the opportunity of all time. They could have welcomed the Holy Family, but they missed out. Our Lord Jesus Christ was born in a stable in a cave amongst farm animals. And it's just a lovely display that's been put up together today to remind us of this. Wise men traveled great distances in order to worship the King of Kings. The shepherds of the hillside came and worshipped, but where was the mayor of Bethlehem? There's no indication that any of the elders or leading citizens of Bethlehem even acknowledged the greatest event to ever occur in Bethlehem before or since. There's no indication that the priests arrived. They missed out on the greatest opportunity and event ever. Where was the high priest? What was his purpose except to prepare for the Messiah? Where was King Herod? It's extraordinary to note that the entire priesthood of Israel, thousands of priests, and all the thousands employed in the temple, they missed the birth of the Messiah, the whole purpose of their existence. He came into his own, and his own received him not. At his birth, there was no room for Jesus in any of the homes or inns of Bethlehem. Nor is there space for Jesus in most of the Xmas cards, in most of the schools and most of the music of today. Even nativity scenes are discouraged and banned in many cities around the world. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? We should ask people, do you remember whose birthday we're celebrating? And we should also ask, what gift will you give the one whose birthday we're celebrating? It's a good gift to ask people who are talking about gifts. What gift are you going to give to the Lord Jesus? It's his birthday after all. What can you give to our Lord Jesus Christ? What gift would be appropriate for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator and the Eternal Judge, our Saviour and Redeemer? Well, the wise men came and they brought very appropriate gifts. Gold for the King of Kings, myrrh for the High Priest of all High Priests, um, uh, incense for the High Priest above all High Priests, myrrh for the Lamb of God who would be the sacrifice for our sins. But what can we give? Andrew brought a little boy to Jesus, and the little boy gave Jesus his lunch, five loaves and two fish. With that little boy's lunch, our Lord Jesus fed thousands of people with the food he multiplied. Jesus can do a lot with a little. You may have very little to give Jesus, but he can do a lot with it. Our Lord Jesus points out that the widow gave more than all the rest. The widow's might might have looked very small in the eyes of those around, but the Lord, knowing how little she had, recognized she actually had given everything she possibly could. In fact, she had given more than she could. She had given all she had to live on, the Bible says. Mary gave our Lord Jesus Christ the gift of expensive perfume, anointing him for burial. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume and poured it on the feet of the Lord Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, hosted Jesus and honored him by making restitution and donating much of his riches to the poor. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what can you give the Lord Jesus? 
You can give him your attention. Study his word. Get to know the word of God. Get to know the God of the word. Meditate on his word, the Bible. The greatest book ever written. Determined to put first things first. Bible before breakfast. Scripture before supper. Psalm before lunch. Read through the whole Bible this year. That'll only take 10 to 12 minutes a day. If you read four chapters of the Bible every day, there's 1,187 chapters in the Bible. If you read just four chapters a day, you can read through the entire Bible in one year. How can you know his will unless you read his word? To obey is better than sacrifice. Determine to obey God. Dedicate your life to obeying the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 verse 28. Care for God's creation. All animals are God's animals. Plant trees. Cultivate gardens. This is what one of our dams looked like a few years ago uh, because of the drought. The city has destroyed millions of trees. Millions of trees have been cut down or burned down in the last 30 years around the Cape Peninsula. Millions of trees. We short about 10 million trees less than we had in 1994. And then we have droughts like this. Adopt animals. Recognize that all animals belong to God. Care for the environment. The Cape is home to the African penguins. And we've had times when oil tankers have sunk off our shores and spilled tens of thousands of liters of crude oil on our shores, which can kill all the, dolphin, all the sea life. Cleaning up the mess on our beaches was something volunteers did. And then cleaning the penguins was something many of us had to do. 80,000 Capetonians rushed off and volunteered to help the penguins when we had the penguin disaster in the year 2000. And my sister-in-law arrived from Austria for her first visit to Africa in the middle of this crisis in June 2000. I said, uh, as I picked her from the airport, Debbie, we have a crisis. We need to go and save penguins. I took her straight to where we were rescuing penguins and scrubbing them. She got quite adept at this professor from the Austrian uh, city of Salzburg. She got quite adept at cleaning penguins and feeding them. And that was one of the most successful operations of saving wildlife since Noah's Ark. We rescued 50,000 penguins, saved African penguins from extinction. That was one example of showing love for God by caring for his creation. We must all do what we can to secure the well-being of God's animals. And to see these little penguins set free uh, back into the ocean after they'd been cleaned up and fed and cared for. It's so important that we speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, and that includes the wildlife. The rhinos who have been targeted for poaching. Many rhinos often, somebody's got to care for them. There's so many animals who need care and help, and in the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 verse 28, God has made us responsible to care for his creation. Treat animals with the care and the diligence of those who must give an account to our Creator and Eternal Judge. Be kind to God's animals. Ensure they have access to fresh, clean water and pure, healthy food. Christmas should also be a time of blessing for the animals. Remember, the Lord Jesus was not born amongst people in an inn. He was born amongst animals in a stable. Don't waste food. Think of your pets, the wild birds and other animals who can benefit. It's so important to take crumbs and scatter on the lawn and to not litter. It's disgusting to see how much plastic litter is in the oceans and how much our beaches are endangered and 
and animals like these poor sea turtles entangled by rubbish that people have thrown away and ships have thrown overboard. And there are places where you see disgusting sights like this where God's creation is marred by man's short-sighted selfishness, stupidity and sin. Throwing litter on the ground, who do you think is going to pick it up? And it's going to accumulate, and especially where there's water, it'll end up in a big pile. Do not litter. Recycle. Be thoughtful. Be considerate. Obey the Great Commission. Dedicate your life to making disciples, teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. These are gifts we can give God on his birthday. Introduce other people to Christ. Witness for Jesus. Be alert to evangelistic opportunities. Jesus is the way. We are lost in our trespass and sin. Jesus is the way. We are deceived. Jesus is the truth. We are dead in our trespass and sins. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. What can you give Jesus? You can give him your love. You can give him your devotion, your worship, and your adoration. Give him your heart and your mind and your hands and your feet. Devote your time, your talents, and your treasure to Christ and his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Use your energy and initiative to advance the kingdom of God. There's something we can all do. There's some things only you can do. There are people you can reach that others cannot reach. Be wholehearted. Persevere to the end. Give Christ all that you have. Does Jesus have all of you that you have to have? It is said that at one point, Deal Moody heard a message, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man who holds nothing back, who gives him everything else, and Deal Moody ran to the front of the church shouting, I'll be that man, I'll be that man. He was just 12 years old at the time. Jesus said the widow gave all that she had. What have you given to God? Have you made promises that you've gone back on? Have you made commitments that you have not honored? Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar and first go and be reconciled with your estranged brother. Make that phone call. Write that letter. Forgive. Ask for forgiveness. Do restitution. Christmas is a great time to make right with people that are either wrong with us or we are wrong with. These would be acceptable gifts and sacrifices of praise to present to our Lord Jesus Christ, our, our Savior, on his birthday. Wise men still seek Christ. <coughs> seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Unto us a child is born. We read Isaiah 9 verse 1 to 7 earlier today. Now, we don't normally know the context. Speaking about the people of living in darkness have seen a great light. But we do know the great verse, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you hear this pounded out by Handel's Messiah? It's absolutely magnificent. Handel's Messiah is a wonderful music recital that we should go through, I think, every Christmas or Easter. It's just the most wonderful singing of scripture. It sounds like heaven. If you want to know what heaven sounds like, listen to Handel's Messiah. To see it presented at Kwasabantu is absolutely magnificent. And I've seen a bigger orchestra and choir at Kwasabantu sing it than when we have it in Cape Town at the City Hall. The Old Testament opens with God's case against man because of his sin. Isaiah opens in the same way. The second part of Isaiah, chapter 40, opens with the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, John the Baptist. It's concerned with the person and work of Christ. The New Testament also opens with John the Baptist. 
the forerunner of Jesus preparing his way. Isaiah ends with a vision of the new heavens, new earth, wherein dwell righteousness. The New Testament closes in the same way with Revelation. The similarity between Isaiah, which is a Bible, a mini Bible, and the whole Bible is unforgettable. Nevertheless, there shall be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the lands of Zebulun and the lands of Leftali. These provinces were the first to fall to the Assyrian invasion within months of Isaiah's meeting with Ahaz. God sends distress on disobedient nations. For the guilty, there is gloom. God judges nations. He humbles the proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. God is merciful. He intervenes in history to work salvation and deliverance. This is what grace means. Undeserved favor. Yesterday I heard the imam at the mosque saying that we must all earn God's grace through good works. And of course I had to point out that grace is by definition unearned, undeserved. That's what grace is. Justice is getting what we deserve. What we deserve is an eternity in hell. We are hell-deserving sinners. Grace, God's unmerited favor, is what we don't deserve. That is mercy. That is unmerited favor. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The prophecy, of course, had its fulfillment with God himself in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared and he preached the gospel in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and in Galilee of the Gentiles. In the most unexpected places, at the least expected times, God intervenes. Even in the worst of times, God's people have a comfort. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We persecute, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And I would urge you at this time to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ in Gaza. There are Palestinian Christians today who are caught in the crossfire. Brother Andrew, after the Iron Curtain came down, God's smuggler redirected his attention to the Middle East, and he particularly focused on the Palestinians. And he said, the most lonely Christians in the world are Palestinian Christians. They're persecuted by the Muslims for being Christians and by the Jews and Israel for being Palestinians. So he said, and worse than that, no Christians in the world want to help them or pray for them or identify with them because people are afraid of being thought anti-Semitic. So Christian Palestinians are the most lonely Christians in the world. And he found it important to focus on them. Now bear in mind, since that disgusting, evil attack on the Israeli civilians on the 7th of October, where 1,400 Israelis died, mostly civilians, 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in the counterattack since. They're really in a crossfire. Many of them are not allowed to flee. They're not allowed to move. Hamas keeps them like hostages, like human shields. So let us remember this Christmas season, those whose Christmas has been almost cancelled by the events going on in Palestine and Israel at this moment. It's so important to pray for them. Where sin increased, God's grace increased much more. Post tenebras lux, after the darkness, light. That is the slogan of Geneva. That's a motto of the Reformation. You can go to Frontrup to the Huguenot Monument and they've got post tenebras lux, this Latin phrase up on the wall, after darkness, light. No matter how dark things may seem to be, God's light shines brighter. Not all the darkness can put out the smallest candle. Darkness cannot defeat light. 
I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. When the gospel comes to any place, light comes, a great light. Those who live in darkness outside of Christ have no God, no forgiveness, no salvation, no hope, no heaven. Only darkness and despair. Outside of Christ, there's only darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. The nation of Israel had been severely judged and diminished. It had just lost their lands of Zebulun and Naphtali to the Syrians. Yet the word of God came through Isaiah to comfort his people and to reassure them that despite the present traumatic cutting off and diminishing of the land of Israel, yet the time will come when God himself will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. Everyone rejoices over success, over achievements and over prosperity, as at a harvest, and over gaining a victory or receiving a gift as people rejoice if they get plunder. God's intervention will accomplish the salvation of his people. He will achieve redemption for those to whom he grants the gift of faith and repentance. God will bless his children with the greatest gift ever given, the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from the kingdom of darkness, entrance into the kingdom of God, adoption into the family of God, and those who sow in tears will reap with joy. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. The Lord has intervened and he has ended the oppression of sin and Satan. Into our darkness, his light has shone. At the beginning of his ministry, our Lord Jesus quoted Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The wicked will be judged. Those who oppress God's people will be destroyed. The message of Christmas is not only a message of God's love for all people, but also of his wrath against sin. We see here not only his mercy, but his justice. He saves but he also judges. The message of the cradle includes the message of the cross and the crown. The wreath, Christmas wreath, may tell us this is the season, but the crown of thorns that it should remind us of tells us what the reason is. The message of Christmas is of the cradle, but it should also emphasize the deity of Christ's incarnation. But the purpose of Christ's coming was the cross. The wood of the cradle should remind us of the wood of the cross. He was born to die as an atonement for our sins. Yes, the Savior whose incarnation we remember at Christmas will come again as the eternal judge. We will all stand before his throne. We will have to give an account of our lives for everything we've done and for everything we've said. Unless we've turned to God in faith and repented of our sins, we will be condemned. That is the fact. If our lives have not borne the fruit of obedience, we too will be destined for burning. As Brother Tina said earlier, a tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and burned. There's no place for a tree without fruit. There's no place for a Christian without fruit. Along with those guilty of innocent blood, we will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Everyone loves the birth of a child. Well, almost everyone. Of course, there are some who prefer abortion to birth. Instead of life, they choose death. 
Shame on them. But most of us find the birth of a new child cute, and that's why most people celebrate Christmas. As I discovered, even Muslims are celebrating Christmas. A babe in a manger is so unthreatening, it's so, un so harmless. However, some atheists still feel threatened by the babe in a manger. Every Christmas season, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, which I call the Antichrist Lawsuit Union, institutes lawsuits against public manger scenes. Radical humanists in South Africa are looking forward to future opportunities when they can try to banish every Christian expression from the public. And we've got to use every opportunity for manger scenes and to remind people of the reason for the season. Perhaps they understand something of the immense implications of the baby in a manger. They see the menace of the manger. The God of the ages lying in a feeding trough in a stable. Not born in a palace or in a temple. Not even born in a home. Born outside a human habitation in the cold amongst farm animals. But aside from neurotic atheists, most people feel drawn to the story of a baby born in a manger with angels singing, shepherds kneeling, wise men bringing gifts. It all seems quite nice and sweet and cute, but the verse does not end there. Unto us a son is giving. Now this is getting more threatening. We no longer wish we were a babe in a cradle. Baby Jesus has grown up. He is the son of God who died on the cross. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. This is getting far more threatening. This is why Herod declared war in the womb. He understood the menace of the manger. There was no room for God in the world he had made. Where is the one who has been born king? We have come to worship him, declared the Magi, the wise men from the east. But King Herod felt his selfish lifestyle and his comfortable political position was threatened by a newborn babe. Gripped by selfishness and a lust for power, King Herod sought to murder the Messiah by massacring all still in the manger in Bethlehem. Centuries before, Pharaoh had sought to slaughter all the newborn Hebrew boys in Egypt. Today there are other pharaohs and Herods waging a similar war on the womb. There is a war on the womb. The most dangerous place in the world today is not Ukraine, it's not Syria. The most dangerous place in the world today is in the womb. And uh, one out of every three babies conceived has been killed by abortion. In America, amongst black Americans, it's more than one in two. More black American babies conceived are killed than are born. That's the worst demographic when it comes to, to abortion. Christ was not born a prince. He was not born an heir to the throne. He's the only one who's ever been born a king. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign. He has the final authority. In Eastern Europe, the communist authorities allowed prayer in the churches, but not in the schools. You could preach piety, but you could not preach the lordship of Christ over all areas of life. Jesus could be savior of your soul, maybe, but not lord of your mind. Not Lord of your life, not Lord of your home, not Lord of your work or community or city or country. When the Bible speaks of the government, capital G, it's always speaking about God's sovereign government. The government shall be upon his shoulders. If you write capital G for government, you better be referring to God. It's very disturbing how many people put capital G for government and small g for gospel. Capital S for state and small s for saviour. That is idolatry. We are unbiblical when we attribute sovereign powers to the civil authorities. They're not the government, they're just a civil government or political government or the South African government or the municipal government or mayoral government. They're not the government. The government is God. The government shall be upon his shoulders. God determines whether you live or die. God determines 
when the rain comes. God is the one who makes the soil bring forth uh, fruit and crops. God is the one who is in charge of the universe. He is the government. On earth we may have the American government, the Russian government, the South African government, but that's small g. Capital G is God. Civil governments are God's servant, God's deacon, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on a wrongdoer. Governors are sent by God to punish those who do wrong. This is a beautiful painting in Lausanne, Austria, in Switzerland, entitled Justice Lifts the Nations. And unlike the American Lady Justice is always blindfolded, for some reason Americans like their Lady Justice blindfolded. The European Lady Justice are never blindfolded. Instead of American Lady Justice who has the sword pointed upwards, here in Switzerland the sword's pointed downwards to an open book that has written on it Holy Bible. All Lady Justices, either in America or Europe, are holding a scales of justice to weigh, to weigh the evidence. But, and all have a sword of justice. But here in Switzerland, the sword is pointed downwards to an open Bible, and the city elders are looking towards Lady Justice for wisdom in settling the disputes of the people in front while a sheriff stands with a double-handed sword. Justice lifts the nations, and justice is based on the Word of God upon the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life. As Jesus declared to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. This is the message of the manger. Jesus is Lord. All authority is delegated authority. All authority is limited authority. All authority is accountable to God. He is the Lord of all. He is Lord over all aspects of life. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And notice I capitalize the king referring to Jesus and I decapitalize the kings referring to the kings and the same of the lords. He is the Lord, capital L. His law is capital L law. Man's law is small l. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I trust you've all heard Handel's Messiah and can recall this wonderful verse being pounded out um, by the choir. Wonderful Counselor. He is all-knowing. He embodies absolute wisdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He hears our prayers. He guides his people. He is mighty God. He is all-powerful. He is God himself. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. True God from true God. The incarnation of God. Fully God and fully man. Light from light. Now ask Jehovah's Witnesses and the unbelieving Jews and the liberal theologians, please explain this verse from Isaiah 9. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How do you understand these words? How can you possibly interpret this verse as anything other than the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ? So the JWs and the Jews have got some explaining to do. How do you explain Isaiah 9 verse 6? You don't accept Jesus as God? Well, how do you explain these verses from the Old Testament, from the Jewish Bible? He is the everlasting Father. He is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, as a Father, He is compassionate. He cares. He provides. He protects His children. And He is the Prince of Peace. There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. It's outrageous to have the United Nations having the verse from Isaiah, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, neither shall I make war anymore. They've got that verse plagiarized in the front of the United Nations in New York, not attributing it to the Bible or to the book of Isaiah, attributing this messianic prophecy to themselves. 
The United Nations cannot even bring peace to Somalia or to Yugoslavia. How on earth is the United Nations going to bring peace to the world? There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. Those politicians who think they can achieve peace without Christ are deluded, to put it nicely. Only in Christ can we as individuals or families or nations find true and lasting peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. The ultimate victory and triumph of Christ's kingdom is inevitable. Nothing can stop it. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. At the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. It's quite inspiring to see how many countries around the world have Christmas trees and some nativity scene in their marketplaces uh, of their city squares and in the capitals of their countries. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end will not come until the Great Commission is fulfilled. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, another great verse pounded out in Handel's Messiah. This is what the Great Commission calls us to. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto Christ. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. There is no authority that is not under Christ. This is what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Isaiah 11 verse 9 declares, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now what percentage of the sea is covered by water? Pretty much 100%. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That includes Caesar, Nero, Muhammad, Ceausescu, Mugabe, everybody, enemies of Christ, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, they all will have to bow, Karl Marx, and declare Jesus Christ as Lord. If they did not bow to him as saviour in their lifetime, they'll have to bow to him as judge in eternity. This is the message of Christmas, not only a message of the crib, but of the cross. Not only of the cross, but also of the crown. At Christmas we celebrate the advent of the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, holy, glorious creator. God, Emmanuel, coming into this world. Christmas begins with Christ. That is why we shouldn't use terms like Xmas. You don't want to cross Christ out. It's not Xmas, it's Christmas. The first recorded reaction to the birth of Christ was from the shepherds, who returned glorifying and praising God for the things which they had heard and seen. And Simeon in the temple took the baby Jesus in his arms and he blessed God. And Joseph and his mother marveled at all these things which were spoken of him. You rejoice that a child is born, but do you recognize that he is Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God? Do you submit to his government? Do you obey him as Lord of your life? Is he your wonderful counselor? Is he your mighty God? Is he your everlasting Father? Is he the Prince of Peace in your life? 
If so, rejoice. His government will never end. His kingdom will endure forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Shall we pray? And let's just be silent for a moment and ask, what is God asking us to do as a result of this message today? Is there a prayer you need to pray? Is there a commitment you need to make?